Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Programme. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday, 12 noon, and I hope you're with us uh, regularly too, and uh, we're here to protect and to promote public education. That's education that's public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it's public in access. It's open to all teachers and all students and all uh, parents and all employees. It should be public in ownership and control. And uh, we believe that it should be the only one that is publicly funded because it is the only system that can be publicly accountable. But um, we know that that's not the case and it's something that we've got to fight for. We've got a very interesting program today. We've just been through a week of ANZAC and uh, we were presented with uh, a Minister of Defence who is talking about going to war. And we're also presented with Ministers of Education who want to uh, control the history syllabus in our state public schools. When we go back to the First World War and remember the hundreds of thousands of young men that were sacrificed at the Somme because of the incompetence of generals and the way, in fact, um, the young people from Australia went in their droves uh, to fight this war, uh, we are a little bit concerned. So we have a very interesting article about all of this written by Henry Reynolds, a very distinguished historian from Australia. He's also very well known because he started the interest in Aboriginal history and the Aboriginal wars in Australia. So we're going to talk about this a little bit today and ask why is it when uh, education is a state matter that the federal government, the Conservative government in Canberra, can be even talking about such things. It's not their job, and yet they are making it their job. How come? How can this be? Uh, then we have some other interesting material. Uh, there, there is still the problem of funding, and as well as that, um, there is uh, solving the skills crisis. Bridget is going to uh, read us something about the skills, so-called skills crisis. And then why are there so many perfect international baccalaureate scores? Dale, I've got some very interesting material on this. And of course, Jeff has got his American news and we've got Maddie's great state school. So let's get on with it. Press release 934, public education, the history curriculum and the car key election. Dale will, will bring us in and Peter is going to read uh, the Henry Reynolds article for us. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, press release 934, which, of course, is available at the DOGS website. Each week you can go there and catch up on the press release. Uh, this is entitled Public Education, the History Curriculum and a Car Key Election. In the never-ending debate about the funding of public, private, and public and private education, relatively little consideration is given to the effects of the decline, declining influence of state governments and the increasing exercise of power by the Commonwealth. Strictly speaking, the national government has only limited time, limited constitutional power over schools, but the authority it does exercise with increasing intrusiveness into state decision-making derives from its powers to make conditional grants under Section 96 of the Constitution to states and territories. It is now a major player, not only in funding, but also in assessment and curriculum development. In the last week, citizens have not only been shocked to discover the neglect of our government in diplomatic relations to our close Pacific neighbours, as Morrison attempts to mount a khaki election, citizens who lived the Second World War and their children and children's children could only feel betrayed. But we have been even more shocked by, a, by the attempt of Defence Minister Dutton 
to beat the drums of war at an Anzac ceremony. Put this together with the demands of the Morrison government to reduce sections of the Australian history syllabus to jingoistic glorification of war so that our youth will more easily be persuaded to fight for queen and country and public school teachers and parents can only be wondering what has happened to the curriculum decision making for our schools. Where are the teachers, the state education departments and curriculum experts in all of this? The following article by distinguished historian Henry Reynolds, which was published in the conversation on April 25th, outlines the current problems facing our history teachers in our public schools. Over to you, Peter. Okay, thank you, Dale. <clears throat> yes, this is an interesting article by uh, distinguished historian uh, Henry Reynolds entitled Anzac's Contested Legacy. <clears throat> The evidence suggests that the federal government sees ANZAC as an attractive tool to open a new front in the culture wars and one where the Labor Party might well be wedged. The ongoing discussion between state and federal education ministers about national curriculum drafted by the Australian Curriculum Assessment Authority is still not finalised. There have been a number of sticking points, none more persistent then what history should be offered in secondary schools and how it should be taught. Disagreement split into the mainstream media uh, late last year when Federal Education Minister Alan Tudge attacked the proposed history syllabus, grading it with a C, and declaring that it would teach students, quote, a negative, miserable view of Australia, unquote. And that could have serious consequences leading to students developing a hatred of Australia, which might affect their willingness to defend the country. Indeed, he wanted students to emerge from school having learnt about our country with a love of it rather than a hatred of it. It was the question of Anzac Day, which Tudge found particularly confronting. The draft curriculum for year nine history included reference to, quote, the commemoration of the First World War, including different historical interpretations and contested debates about the nature and significance of the Anzac Legion and war, unquote. The minister was adamant. The Anzac legend, he declared, was not going to be contested an idea on my watch. The matter was quite clear. Anzac Day, he explained, should not be a contested idea. It is the most sacred day in the Australian calendar. Tadger's reaction illustrated a central feature of Anzac Day. It serves two quite different purposes. It is a day of national remembrance when all those killed in our wars are honoured. It is a day of collective lament but it's also the occasion to pay tribute to a far more contentious proposition that the Anzac legend in 1915 was a defining moment in Australian history. As generations of children have been assured, this was when we became a nation, that the young men who attacked the Ottoman Empire died so we could be free. Anyone who has talked to Australian schools in recent years will be aware how wide and deep this nationalistic myth has been perpetuated. Isn't it horrible, if you think about it, to become a nation, our young people, our young men had to be blooded in an imperial war on the other side of the world in what was actually a terrible mistake by incompetent generals. Think about it. Yes, on foreign shores, a long way from Australia. Continuing Henry Reynolds' report, the two aspects of our one day of the year became fused. These are the two aspects that to uh, lament the death of soldiers and secondly, to define the nation. They became fused. The question the his historiography is to disrespect the fallen, to trample on the sanctity of their sacrifice. It is only when this is appreciated we can understand Tudge's insistence 
that the Anzac legend should never be questioned in our schoolrooms. By any measure, it is an extraordinary proposition. The origin, nature and consequences of the First World War remain among the most contentious and widely debated historical questions. The Allied assault on the Ottoman Empire does not escape this continuing scrutiny. And then there is the ongoing assessment by a whole phalanx of Australian historians about our involvement in the war in general and the Gallipoli campaign in particular. Arguments that cover the proposition that the nation was made in an imperial campaign on the other side of the world have become widely accepted amongst his, uh, modern historians. That the belief that nations achieved maturity in war was widespread in the 19th and early 20th century, but it did not survive the horrors of the First World War. It is a case of irresponsible atavism to maintain such an old and dangerous idea. Do we really suggest that all nations need a war as a foundational experience? And then there is equally extraordinary proposition that the young men at Gallipoli achieved in a few months a more enduring legacy than the achievements of far greater number of colonists and Australian-born children during a century and more of nation building. The Anzac legend gives priority to war over civil life and events on the other side of the world of what was achieved here at home. Tudger is right about one thing. If seriously contested, the Anzac legend will not survive in its current form. His vehemence requires further interrogation. The evidence suggests that the federal government sees Anzac as an attractive tool to open a new front in the culture wars and one where the Labor Party might well be wedged. The recent decision by the Acting Education Minister Robert, uh, Stuart Robert to delay his final approval to the new curriculum until just before May's election clearly gestures in this direction. It is safe to assume the Liberal Party strategists are aware of pertinent developments in the United States. History teaching has become a potent weapon in Republican campaigning with strident demands to ban what is known as critical race theory, or more generally to prevent teaching of history of racism. At least 15 Republican states have introduced laws to ban teachers from emphasizing the history of racial oppression. Late last year, history teaching became the dominant issue in the, in the election of the governorship of Virginia, giving an unexpected victory to the Republican challenger, Glenn Youngkin. Yes, it seems that American politics could well be imported here yep. in Australia. Mm. That, I think that's the worry. In fact, the history curriculum has historically been just as contested as the religion curriculum. It's very interesting, going way back to the 19th century. So we'll have a bit of a break. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Dale. And we'll come back and Peter's got a few bits and pieces of facts and figures for you. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR. Well, we've uh, really gone against what we don't, you know, what we usually do. We're usually concerned just with funding matters. We don't usually stray into curriculum matters, but we thought that on Anzac Day we would. But while we're back to funding matters. And there's two very interesting articles this week. Uh, Peter has one from The Guardian for you, uh, from New South Wales. And Maddie has got the education revolution that you'll keep paying for, particularly if Mr Morrison gets back into government. Over to you, Peter. Oh, thank you, Jane. This is an article published in The Guardian uh, on the 28th of April. Uh, entitled Public Schools Had an Extra 10 Billion Funding. Public schools underfunded by at least 6.5 billion a year, while non-government schools received transitional funding 
is detailed in a report by education economist Adam Norris. Private schools have received an extra $10 billion in special deals since 2018, while public schools were underfunded by at least $6.5 billion every year, according to this report. The study by education economist Adam Morris details the legacy of special treatment of private schools, including $4.6 billion of transitional funding after the Gonski 2.0 reforms and $750 million of JobKeeper wage subsidies. Transition arrangements will see non-government schools continue to receive more than 80% of the resourcing standard until 2028. These include Halebury in Victoria, which will get a total of 25 million above that level from 2022 to 2028. Trinity Gamma School in New South Wales with an extra 16.8 million. Monsanto Angelo in New South Wales with 15.3 million and Brisbane Glamour School with 13.9 million. The Australian Education Union President Karina Haythorpe said the Morrison government had, and I quote, shamelessly established and consolidated a deep inequity in Australian education to the detriment of the overwhelming majority of students who attend public schools. Well, isn't that shocking? But uh, it's very interesting because we um, discover that there is somebody in New South Wales that is standing for the Senate, and that's Jane Carr. And uh, she is saying, she's standing for the Mason Party, that she finds the funding bizarre and she intends to do something about it. Uh, that's at least what she's saying on Twitter. So um, good luck to Jane Carroll. But now Maddie has got the education revolution that we'll keep paying for because we are taxpayers. And even though our children are in state schools, we're paying and paying and paying again for the privileges of the private school people. Over to you, Maddie. Thank you so much, Jane. This article is by Jenna Price, who is a columnist and academic. It was written on April 14 of 2022. She says, My mother was a Doris Day fan, but had a little que sera sera about her. A university education for her children was urgent, an elevation beyond refugee status. I'm reminded of her now that applications for 2023 university places are open. But for those who want to study past year 12, it's a bleak field. Is either party considering the future of this new generation? University funding has copped a hiding from the coalition and led to widespread teaching and research cuts. While the Prime Minister and his posse of former education ministers tout the benefits of a trade education, TAFE defunding has seen more than 8,800 full-time equivalent staff positions cut since 2012. Education is being privatised one way or another from nearly every single option post-school down to childcare. What awaits anyone planning on university? Large classes, shorter classes, fewer choices. That's for those enrolled in their actual degrees. Universities are doing their level best to earn money in other ways, which may not measure up to rigorous academic work, a McDonald's hamburger university mentality. Companies pay universities to co-design credentials which fit with company culture. I'm reluctant to use the word ideology here, but you get me. And their employees become the students who emerge with some kind of qualification. The modern jargon is enterprise learning. I remember getting into a hot argument at a university presentation about who would be in charge of ethics in such a situation. All concerns brushed away. Then there are also micro-credentials, tiny courses, meant to chunk together like Lego to a bigger build. 
At universities, they are usually blocks for a bigger degree, but there isn't consensus even across that sector. In vocational education, it's become a smorgasbord of tiny courses without purpose, both big, heading to a real qualification, or small, useless online learning without appropriate academic guidance. Further evidence of privatisation? Look at JobKeeper extended to private universities such as Notre Dame, denied to all public universities even as revenue plummeted. No wonder universities are trying all avenues to raise money. TAFE too is battling. The Centre for Future Works, Alison Pennington, says the government throws billions of dollars at a broken training system of private for-profit providers, including funding non-accredited training, when all the money should be directed to shoring up the skills the nation needs. TAFE offers many options, but comprehensive job qualifying training is its focus, such as trades apprenticeships. Education to jobs pathways have collapsed in Australia, she says. In the background, we have the government trumpeting an uptick in apprenticeship commencements. If you think it's hard to get a plumber now, then despair when you discover apprenticeship completions have collapsed 64% since 2013. Lots of vocational training, yet lots of courses that don't add up to a qualified trade who can plumb or spark or chip in a sector that has been riddled with rorts. When I say privatised, I don't just mean it's being handed to private providers as it has in the vocational education sector. I also mean that you will be paying more out of your pocket. The idea that education is a public good and should be fairly funded and free is long gone. Both the Coalition and the Labor Party contributed to that demise. Labor under Hawke introduced HEX, now HELP, in 1989, and Gillard put the boot into TAFE as early as 2010, by handing over contracts to private colleges. The coalition has pursued that agenda with unlimited fervor. Reducing funding to private schools has been off limits since John Howard frightened the entire electorate with tales of an ALP hit list on the fanciest schools in Australia. Mind you, recent news those schools have received millions of dollars in unneeded funding makes you wish the hit list was real, even as public schools struggle for space and teachers. It's good to remind voters the federal government funds school education this way. $3,282 per government school student, $9,694 per independent school student, and $10,788 per Catholic school student. It just shows you uh, that the Morrison government deals in misinformation. I won't say lies. Um, because I'll leave that to Mr Macron. But um, we'll have a bit of a break and um, I'm hoping that we might hear a very interesting band, the Hyde Street Band. Hyde Street is from Footscray and they took part in the Anzac March this year and, in fact, there was a little boy called Angus and his friends from this band who went all the way down to the Docklands and played the last post at daybreak. It is Anzac Week, so let's give due credit to the young people who took part in it. Thank you. 
Well, we hope you're still with us uh, for this special uh, session today of the DOGS program, because now we're going to talk about solving the skills crisis. We've been talking about universities, schools and TAFE, but it's up now to Bridget to tell us about solving the skills crisis. Over to you, Bridget. Thank you, Jean. And this is an AEU media release from the 26th of April, 2022. Australia's skills shortage was already real, then COVID-19 made it much worse. The National Skills Commission, or the NSC, has declared shortages in almost 20% of 799 occupations. Teachers, engineers, and roles in the healthcare sector, chefs, trades, shearers, and hairdressers are among those jobs for which employers are finding it impossible to fill positions. While this picture is grim enough, the future's not looking rosy either. Demand for these and many other jobs is forecast to increase. Demand is growing rapidly for the 153 occupations that Australia needs to fill most urgently. And of the 646 jobs for which there is not currently no shortage, 93% are also expected to face rapid demand, says the NSC's report, The State of Australia's Skills 2021 Now and Into the Future. The report says the path forward for Australia's economy is a workforce skilled in care, computing, cognitive ability and communication. Funding cuts have failed TAFE. The skills crisis affects every industry, so it makes sense that Australia's national publicly funded vocational and training infrastructure is supported. But major funding cuts have damaged TAFE's ability to respond. Since 2013, more than $3 billion have been cut from the vocational education and training funding and the coalition government has channeled some, some of the money to poor quality private training colleges. The coalition government has failed TAFE, says AEU Federal TAFE Secretary Maxine Sharkey. Before the funding cuts, TAFE employed senior educators who were closely involved in future-proofing industries, says Sharkey. Those educators would liaise with industry to help predict skill shortages up to 10 years ahead. We need a proactive vocational education and training system and a proactive public education system to rebuild our economy and reskill people, says Sharkey. To understand the effect of the coalition's funding cuts, the AEU surveyed 1,000 TAFE staff last year. More than 80% of respondents said budgets in their departments had decreased, while nearly half of those in teaching roles said classes, class sizes had increased. More than two-thirds of those surveyed also said their institution had cut courses in the previous three years. Respondents also reported inadequate investment in capital works and equipment. The ALP has promised that if elected, it will provide 465,000 free TAFE places, $50 million for new equipment and facilities, and a guarantee of 70% of total government funding for TAFE. AEU Federal President Karina Haythorpe welcomed the announcement saying the AEU has been calling for the restoration of funding and proper support for TAFE for a long time, culminating in our hashtag Rebuild with TAFE launch this year. Um, this, these commitments will restore TAFE as the anchor institution of vocational education. A positive cycle. Apart from TAFE's role in helping to rebuild the economy, it's a major economic industry in its own right, according to analysis by the Centre for Future Work. The Centre's 2020 report on investment in productivity and inclusion, the economic and social benefits of the TAFE system, calculated at $92.5 billion in annual economic benefits from TAFE's economic footprint, the higher earnings and productivity achieved by TAFE graduates and the fiscal savings from social benefits. And there are the benefits that are more difficult to put a dollar figure on. For example, says Sharkey, TAFE helped to revive communities after the summer 2020, 2019 to 2020 bushfires on the New South Wales South Coast. Unionists walked in and said, let's rebuild your community with TAFE by running some free basic courses such as in fencing and maintenance. It gave the community a morale boost and they had new skills they could use immediately. When we rebuild TAFE, we rebuild our communities and the economy. It's an ongoing positive cycle, Sharkey says. Well, thank you very much. Uh, well, Morrison's not very interested in TAFE. I mean, the Conservatives have always only been uh, considered the people who do TAFE as the hewers of water, isn't it, and the, the breakers of wood, but um, uh, we know differently. And, of course, now with the lack of, uh, of uh, jobs, or sorry, people to fill jobs, there's plenty of jobs, um, but with the lack of people, uh, hopefully wages might rise. Uh, something might filter down. You never, never know, do you? But the inflation, of course, is uh, causing another headache this week for Mr Morrison. So we live in interesting times. But now we're going to go to Dale on uh, another deal, if you like, or another sham 
that the private schools have been interested in, the International Baccalaureate. Why are the scores so high so that so many children are getting into university from the private sector? Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Uh, yes, I've got an article by Madeline Heffernan uh, titled, How Are There So Many Perfect Scores? The International Baccalaureate results raise eyebrows. So close to 5% of Australian IB or International Baccalaureate graduates received a perfect score of 45 last year, which converts to an ATAR of 99.95. The IB Diploma is an internationally recognised BCE HSC alternative that requires students to study six subjects, including a second language, write a 4,000 word research essay and perform community service. Uh, the Victorian Tertiary Admissions Centre's changes to the way it converts IB scores to ATARs will take effect later this year. So, Australian students are falling behind overseas students, the story goes. Tell that to the Australian students who are blitzing the academically rigorous International Baccalaureate. The Morrison government has set a target for Australian students, student results to be among the world's best by 2030, after students recorded their worst results in the OECD's International Maths, Science and Reading Test, PISA. But Australia's declining performance in PISA is a far cry from the country's stellar IB results, which have reignited questions about equity and inflated market marking. Close to 5% of Australia's IB graduates received a perfect score of 45 last year, which converts to an ATAR of 99.95, up from 2% the year prior. By contrast, just 0.09% of VCE graduates in Victoria achieved a perfect score last year, up slightly from the previous year. In New South Wales, of the 54,847 HSC students who received an ATAR, 0.08% received a perfect score. People are asking, how are there so many perfect scores? What has led to that? said Australian Catholic University senior lecturer Paul Kidson. In Australia, Australia, which is one of the world's biggest IB markets, also had a higher pass rate and better results than the global average. Kidson said Australia's IB results reflected the high socioeconomic status of IB students, the organisation's support for students during COVID-19 pandemic and schools possibly selecting their most able students for the diploma. Dr Sarah Richardson, who has worked extensively on PISA and the IB, said the strong link between socioeconomic status and educational achievement played a key role in explaining why Australian IB students performed so well. But the country's PISA scores were on a downward trajectory. Richardson said Australia's PISA results revealed a gulf between the top performing students and the weakest students, larger than in many other countries. We know that the correlation between socioeconomic status and achievement in Australia is high. We already see this in NAPLAN at grade three, and the gap gets greater as students move up through school. Schools often chose the cream of the crop to do IB for years 11 and 12, said education consultant Paul O'Shaughnessy from Regent Consulting. They screen them because it's more difficult. Some schools insist on a B-plus average in year 10 to undertake the course in Australia, whereas if you're in Hong Kong, the curriculum is the IB whether you're a battler or not, he said. The IB Diploma is an internationally recognised alternative to Victoria's BCE and New South Wales HSC that requires students to study six subjects, including a second language, write a 4,000 word research essay and perform community service. Government schools account for about a fifth of schools offering the IB for years 11 and 12 and include Albert Park College, Brighton College the Mac, and the Mac Robertson's Girls High School Select Entry School. 
mainly taught at high-fee non-government schools, including Geelong Grammar, PLC and Wesley, there have been complaints that the IB students have an edge over their VCE counterparts when their results are converted to ATARs. Kidson said last year's IB results, in which the mean global graduate score jumped 2.8 points to 32.4, had reignited concerns about overly generous marking. There's a real sensitivity to supporting students and schools that have gone through difficult challenges, and that's laudable. But what you're looking for in those conversions is real consistency, he said. It's not just just that there's some change, but that the change is so significant. The spokeswoman for the IB said the IB has taken the pandemic's global disruption to education into account when determining grades for the year. The IB's main priority has been to ensure students are not disadvantaged by the pandemic, including their applications to university and higher education. New South Wales Uni Chiefs have ordered a review of last year's IB results after a surge in perfect scores. The Victorian Tertiary Admissions Centre's changes to the way it converts IB scores to ATARs will take effect later this year. From late 2022 for 2023 submissions, a new fine-grained conversion schedule will be used to convert IB diploma program total points to an ATAR, a VTAC spokesperson said. VTAC works closely with our colleagues interstate to ensure our conversions remain fair and equitable. And there were quite a few comments about this. Um, uh, Dave pointed out that you know, there's only one reason the elite schools, the elite private schools even offer the IB. They think it gives them a better chance of getting a higher score for their high fee paying students. And the statistics seem to indicate that they're right. Um, and JVIC says the kids doing IB are almost always the smartest ones in the, in the room to start with. This is the other side of the VCE premiership table game where papers carry on about how poorly some schools do in VCE compared to others. Often, this is precisely because their best and brightest are doing IB, so are not counted in the VCE table. But how do we know that they're the best and brightest? No state school students had the opportunity to compete. Sounds pretty easy to win if you exclude half the smart kids because they are not wealthy. How interesting. So it's just another trick, isn't it, to uh, make sure that if somebody is prepared to pay, then they get special consideration. It's, um, you're not going to get the best at the end of the day, of course, and it's well known that a lot of private school students don't do terribly well when they get to university. That's correct. But um, we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back for Jeff on his American news. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Be a part of your community radio station. Well, we hope you're still listening to the Dogs Program and we're very happy to have Jeff to fill us in on what's happening over there in America. Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Jean. Look, this article uh, sort of dovetails with what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. It carries on with the interesting and bizarre story of uh, of what's happening in the American South in Florida, uh, where they've banned maths textbooks because they supposedly contain critical race theory. Uh, and this is another word for critical race theory is history. Um, and this this article is by Rob Boston and, and Rob, Rob Boston, and it appeared in Americans United for Separation of Church and State, which is a website over there. And um, the title goes like this. Florida officials claims that critical race theory is lurking in maths texts. Don't add up. And goes on. Officials in Florida have banned dozens of math books because they contain critical race theory, CRT. You read that right. Maths books are accused of somehow discussing racial issues in ways that far-right Republicans and the Christian nationalist allies don't like. For those of us who have been monitoring Christian nationalism for years, the current attack on public school textbooks and material in public libraries is disturbingly familiar. It works like this. 
take something that actually exists but is not well known or understood by the American people, distort it beyond all recognition, and construct an elaborate conspiracy theory that accuses a nefarious cabal of sinister elites of using the thing to infiltrate all our public institutions for some wicked ends. That then becomes an excuse to undermine those institutions or block forms of instruction that the far right opposes. Critical race theory, which includes a rather uncontroversial notion that entrenched forms of racism have historically been a problem in America and remain so today, is sometimes used as an analytic tool in colleges, graduate schools, and law schools. It is not routinely taught in secondary schools. What is taught, or should be, in secondary schools is that our country, being in the United States, has not always lived up to its promise of liberty and justice for all, and that Native Americans, Black Americans, women, Asian Americans, immigrants, Jews, Muslims, non-believers, LGBTQ residents, and others have been subjected to oppression, bigotry, and denial of basic rights. Any fair reading of history makes this clear, but to Christian nationalists who cling to a vision of the US as God's favourite nation, any discussion of our country's flaws, no matter how glaring they may be, is tantamount to teaching kids to hate America. In the 1950s, a far-right extremist tarred anyone with even remotely progressive views as communists. In the 1980s, religious right groups attacked books for teaching secular humanism or witchcraft. Like critical race theory, these things exist, but they were hardly being pushed in public schools, libraries, and government institutions. There's a troubling echo in these new attacks on critical race theory. It has become the far right's new bogeyman. And because religious and political extremists need, to, need it to scare their base of voters, they will conjure it up wherever necessary, even finding it in the pages of books designed to teach long division. Um, what, what a bizarre uh, position for them to take. Uh, like every fact, uh, you know, this, the right in America seems to have facts as its enemy. Anyway, this is another article from the beloved Diana Ravitch's uh, blog in the United States. Uh, Diana Ravitch being a wonderful fighter for public education in the United States and a historian of, of extraordinary note. Anyway, on her website, she's published, republished an article by Tom Ultikin, and the article's called The City Fund Uses Oligarch Money to Privatise Public Schools, published on April 25th. Now, Tom Ultikin is a retired teacher of advanced mathematics and physics. He's an expert on the destroy public education movement, which is a, a thing. In this post, he explores the oligarch money behind the City Fund and cities it has targeted for privatisation of their public schools. He writes, Born in 2018, the City Fund, TCF, is a concentration of oligarch wealth, crushing democracy and privatising the commons. John Arnold, infamous Enron energy, Enron energy trader, and Reed Hastings, Netflix CEO and former California Charter Schools Association board member, claimed to be investing $100 million each to establish the TCF. Their July 2018 announcement was delivered on Nirav's King, Nirav Kingsland's blog, Relinquishment, which recently started requiring approval to access. The TCF goal is to implement the portfolio school management model into 40 cities in the US by 2028. At present, TCF says it is serving 14 cities, Oakland, California, Stockland, California, Denver, Colorado, Camden, New Jersey, Washington, D.C., Memphis, and goes on. Uh, the operating structure of the fund is modelled after a law, a law firm. Six of the 14 founding members are lawyers. They constitute the core of the team being paid to execute the oligarch-financed attack on public education. TCF has spent heavily to develop a local ground game in the communities of targeted cities. On their website, they provide a list of major grants made uh, before uh, basically the end of 2019, defining major grants as being more than $200,000. Many of these grants are to other privatisation-focused organisations like TFA and Chiefs for Change, but most of them are for developing local organisations like the $5,500,000 oh, $5, to Opportunity Trust in St. Louis 
another TFA-related business. The TFA-developed asset founder and CEO Eric Scroggins worked in various leadership positions at TFA for 14 years, and there's a big table below listing the amazing millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars of spending that they have uh, spread around fighting against public schools. In many ways, the Mind Trust in Indianapolis, Indiana, was the model for this kind of development. A 2016 article from the Progressive Policy Institute, PPI, which is quite school privatisation friendly, covers its development from 2006 founding by Democratic Mayor Bart Peterson and his right-hand man, David Harris, until 2016. PPI noted, the Mind Trust convinced Teach for America, the new teacher project, and Stand for Children, these are all names of some sort of uh, organisations, to come to Indianapolis in part by raising money for them. Since then, TFA has brought in more than 500 teachers and 39 school leaders, the latter through its Indianapolis Principal Fellowship. TNTP, Indianapolis Teaching Fellows Program, has trained 498 teachers and Stand for Children has worked to engage the community to educate parents about the school reform and to spearhead fundraising for school board candidates. The Mind Trust became a successful example of implementing all the important strategies for privatising public schools. As a result, the Indianapolis public school system is the second most privatised system in America, with over 60% of its students attending schools no longer controlled by the elected school board. Stand for Children, which PPI preferenced, is almost entirely about funnelling dark money into local school board, school board races. These nationwide efforts are now being bolstered by the political action organisation staffers at TCF created Public School Allies. The Public School Allies was founded as uh, an organisation many can contribute to, its, to politicians. However, contributions to it are not tax exempt. Billionaire funded organisations like Public School Allies can overwhelm local elections. So they're basically taking huge amounts of money and using it to distort, I'm, I'm saying this now, using it to distort elections designed to um, work on the policies of public education. And these large oligarch, oligarchs are fun, funneling money into these organisations in order to destroy public schooling and install their version of private schools over their charter schools, which, by the way, have no better results than public schools uh, in, in equally dem equal demographics when you know, you take into account things like earning capacity of parents and things like that. Anyway, just to return to the article, there's a lot of detail in it, so I'm just abbreviating it. The giant quantities of money concentrated in such a few hands are destroying democracy. How is a citizen of an impoverished neighbourhood who is opposed to having her public schools privatised going to pollute politically compete with oligarchs from San Francisco or Seattle or Bentonville. Organisations such as like, like public school allies regularly come in and monetarily swamp any political opposition. That is not democracy. I'm convinced that John Arnold, who is opposed to people receiving pensions, sincerely believes charter schools are better than public schools. Likewise, his partner, Reed Hastings, truly believes that elected school boards are bad. And Alice Walton really does think that vouchers are a good idea. However, I believe that they are wrong and that the idea of offloading some of their tax burden is much more important to their beliefs than they will admit. Witnessing the oligarch fueled attacks on the commons, I'm convinced that billionaires need to be taxed out of existence if we are to have a healthy democracy of the people, by the people and for the people. It may seem easy to criticise billionaires because of the First Amendment. It's not. Several years ago, I wrote a post about John Arnold, mentioning the fact that he had been a high-flying energy trader at Enron. A few days later, I got a notice from an Arnold spokesperson that he would sue me if I didn't delete the post. Not wanting to fight a billionaire in court, I backed down. Good luck to Tom Ultikan. It's interesting where it says Ultikan described the philosophy of the City Fund and its spin-offs as democracy is bad and privatisation is good. And that's pretty much what it boils down to, this whole modern school choice ideology that's promoted by the white billionaires. <laughs> it's true. It's true. But I also noticed that he made a really important point. They're using it to funnel what monies that otherwise would go into the tax purse. It's a tax write-off for them, which simultaneously bolsters their, their public standing as outstanding members of the community who support the education with them with their largesse and their and their philanthropy, where actually what they're doing is minimising their tax burden. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, things that would otherwise go to build schools and hospitals uh, are going instead to their vanity projects. Exactly. 
Uh, back to you, Jean. Well, thanks, Jeff, particularly the critical race theory and the curriculum in America. Uh, Peter was right when he said that with the Anzac Day problems, uh, we're, um, we're following America maybe. But um, we have now our session where we like to be positive, particularly about our public schools. And Maddie's got our great state school of the week. Over to you, Maddie. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And our great state school of the week is Q High School. Congratulations, Q High School. Now I'm going to read something from their website. Established in 1963, Q High School is a high-performing co-educational school located in the inner eastern suburbs of Melbourne. The school proudly provides an outstanding holistic education to students of the local community with a current enrolment of approximately 1,100 students. Q High School is a culturally diverse community with more than 30 different cultural backgrounds represented among local students. Our well-established international student program adds to this diversity. Our comprehensive learning and teaching program is student-centered with high expectations set to encourage students to aspire, strive and achieve the best of their individual abilities. Q High School is a comfortable and stimulating place to learn and work with excellent facilities and recreational spaces and an inclusive values-driven culture that fosters a strong sense of connectedness among the school community. At Q High School, there is a focus on ensuring that every student experiences maximum learning growth throughout their time at the school. This is achieved through a holistic approach to planning and assessment with differentiated curriculum and a highly effective instructional model that frames our understanding of successful teaching and powerful learning. We promote intellectual engagement and provide opportunities for student self-awareness and self-regulation. We seek to empower students in a learning environment by asking them to direct and take responsibility for their learning through a range of formal and informal processes. We understand that students must be recognized as critical partners in this collaborative work of enhancing their own learning. At Q High School, we are proud of the fact that students know they can rely on a positive, connected, supportive environment. We seek to enhance our whole school culture of inclusion as we recognize that this is integral to student health and well-being. Staff and students at Q High School work together to build an individual and collective sense of efficacy by promoting students' sense of pride and self-respect. The inclusive education at Q High School ensures that all members of our school community, regardless of their individual needs, can participate, learn and achieve. Q High School is proud of its status as a high-performing school. We ensure that our graduating students reach their academic potential through tailoring a learning program that fits their interests and needs. Perhaps more importantly though, we foster in our students an understanding that their contributions to their future communities will be most effective if their beliefs and actions are grounded in the Q High School values of accountability, social equity, participation, integrity, respect and excellence. That was very well written. Mm. I, I really enjoyed that. There's some great <laughs> values for yes. uh, children to aspire to. Very different from private school values, aren't they? Well, there's I... been around Q, that's, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that those people in some of the wealthiest parts of uh, Melbourne have the opportunity to go to a state high school. Mm. So I'm going to throw some facts and figures at you now from the ACARA website. This school is a big one with a resulting wide curriculum. There are 1,118 pupils. Its ICSIA value is 1,103, which is above the average of 1,000. 45% of student families have an income in the upper quartile of the Australian community and 30% are from the second quartile. 
17% from the third and 8% are from disadvantaged families. There are 45% of the students from non-English backgrounds attending this school and no Indigenous students. The Australian government provides $3.2 million per annum and the state $12.8 million. The parents paid $2,285,000 or about $2,000 per student in fees and raised $297 in 2020. All in all, it costs $16,000 to educate a child at this secondary school. And given the high number of children from um, other language groups, the NAPLAN results and development of children in school is very impressive. So congratulations, Q High School. You're doing a fantastic job, both students, the community and the teachers, and we appreciate you. Thank you, Maddie. And I think our time has run out. Uh, and thank you for being with us this afternoon. And uh, we look forward to coming back next Saturday at the same time. If you want to find more about the dogs, go to www.adogs.info. But for this afternoon, thanks to Dale and Peter and Maddie and Jeff and Bridget for our program. But it's from us all. Bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.